Last week, we had the privilege of hearing uh, Pastor Joe speak to us about the kinds of things that have been happening in the West Bank, in the Middle East, land of Israel. And among the things that he mentioned, he talked about uh, opportunities to see God at work in fresh and Uh, lively ways. There are many places in the world today that if we were to visit them and visit believers in those places, it would be like we were living in the book of Acts all over again. And we don't necessarily see that happening uh, in the United States. I think one of the reasons that we don't see it here and we do see it in other parts of the world, you know, some people kind of scratch their head and say, what's the deal? And I think part of it is the answer that Jesus gave as to why he could not do very many miracles in Nazareth, his hometown. And it was because of the lack of faith of those people. And the church today in the United States, I think, has become accustomed to the Christian religion, but has not become accustomed to expecting great things through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we open to Luke chapter 7 and pick up our study of Luke, um, he has concluded his discourse with his disciples. Remember how he went up into the mountain, the scripture says, and he spent time in prayer. And then he chose, this is chapter 6, he chose 12 of those who had been following him to be his closest disciples into whom he would pour his life, he would uh, invest his teaching and invest himself so that they would be that close band that carried out his mission uh, after his uh, death and resurrection and ascension. Having chosen them, the scripture says he came down to a level place and he taught them and shared with them a message that was very much in content similar to the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he kind of shared those same ideas with his disciples. And the the scripture also says, with the crowd that was uh, gathered around them. And now we go to chapter 7, and Luke tells us that having done that, he goes back into Capernaum, which is the town on the north shore of Galilee, where he has made his temporary residence and headquarters, as it were, for his ministry in the Galilean region. And in going back there, Luke picks out for us some events that happen in his life that in a sense underscore the teaching that he has given. When I say he picks them out, of course not negating the guidance of the Holy Spirit, But we realize that Jesus did many more things than those which are recorded. We know that because John, at the end of his gospel, says, if I were to tell you everything that Jesus did and said, the whole world couldn't contain the library of books. Um, John says that the sheer volume was astounding. And so uh, we don't have every single thing Jesus did recorded in the gospels. But we do have a lot of the things that happen in Capernaum. And Capernaum is an interesting town because 
Jesus living there had an opportunity in a relatively confined geographical area to do a lot of miracles. And oddly enough, they still did not come to believe in him. Not really. A few did, but not the town. In fact, Jesus says that if Sodom had seen the miracles that were wrought in Capernaum, they would have turned to God in faith and still be here today. But Capernaum has seen Christ himself in their midst and still missed the picture. And as a consequence, Jesus says rather ominously, it will be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than for those of you living in Capernaum. You have really uh, missed it. So Luke takes us back to Capernaum and he tells us some of the things that Jesus did that also served to underscore the teaching. And one of the first things that he tells us about is an occasion when a Roman centurion sent a delegation of Jewish leaders to Jesus to explain a predicament that he had. The predicament was that one of his servants, a slave whom he dearly loved and you know thought highly of and valued, had become ill really to the point of death. And he wanted Jesus to be aware of this because he knew of Jesus' reputation. Why don't you follow with me in Luke chapter 7 while I read the account to you, and then we'll come back and talk about it in some depth. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. When he had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he, that is the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends uh, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. I captioned the first section of the message, Love your enemies, a practical demonstration. Um, I don't know how many of you got to be here last Tuesday night as Joe was talking about the challenging tensions that exist between Palestinians and Jews, or to uh, think about the kinds of tensions that often exist uh, historically uh, between people, racial prejudice, um, historic uh, ancient kind of rifts and 
you know, kind of like the Hatfield and McCoys kind of thing, that generation after generation, it carries on. But it is amazing to me that uh, some people are able to bear a grudge throughout generations. Um, I grew up in the South, and I, I don't want to really pick on the South this morning, but the, there were some things that I never really quite got. Uh, I grew up uh, in Florida, and then went to school in Georgia, and then started uh, pastoral ministry in Pensacola, and then Alabama, and then Tennessee. So I was pretty much immersed in Southern culture. And in growing up, uh, in that region, and then going to start a church in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, um, as I got to uh, you know to, to know the people, and you would ask them you know about uh, things that were outstanding about their town or that stood out or were significant, um, they would inevitably always mention the Carter House. In fact, it had a sign and a plaque out front uh, of the historic Carter House. And that particular residence was there during the Civil War, and it was taken over by the Confederate Army as a hospital, a field hospital, for the Battle of Franklin. And they were quick to talk about the fact that five generals died in the Carter House for the Confederate Army. And uh, they were quick to tell you that Sherman was responsible for it. And a hundred years later, they were still fighting the Civil War. Many of them were still carrying that grudge. And uh, that's something that I, I just, I could never comprehend. How could you be upset about something that happened five generations ago? You know, it, it, it happened to your great-great-grandparents. And that's ancient history. It's over and done with. How could you be upset over a group of people because of the color of their skin or because of their nationality or their background or the language they speak? I've never been able to, to understand that. I've got plenty of my own faults, but, but that's, this kind of prejudice and historic hatred is something that has never made sense to me. But for a lot of people, they not only carry it five generations, they carry it 50 generations. They carry it for centuries, these ancient hatreds and rifts. And they, they hate each other just because they hate each other. And if you really were to ask them why, they don't have a good reason why. Well, they sort of do because they hate each other. They keep doing bad things to each other, so they keep the, uh, the frustration kind of going. And this is the story of Israel in the Middle East, even in the time of Christ. They've gone back to Jerusalem 400 years before. When we studied the minor prophets, a lot of them had to do with that period of time when uh, Israel went back, the, the people that had been carried off to Babylon went back and began to rebuild Jerusalem. But pretty soon, you know, it was one uh, government after another that took over. And in the time of Christ, it was the Roman Empire that had subjugated the whole region. And the nation of Israel existed under the dominance of Rome. And they hated the Romans. Every Roman soldier was a reminder of the occupation. They hated the ground they walked on. They hated the Samaritans. 
They didn't want to have anything to do with the half-breeds, which were the Samaritans. And they didn't want to have anything to do with the Romans, the Gentiles. They, they wanted their own land for themselves. And it just irked them that they were really not a free people. This rift was so deep that if you even went in the home of a Gentile, you were ostracized and considered unclean. You had done something terrible to your countrymen by even going inside the house of a Gentile. So those kind of feelings ran deep. And then a Roman centurion, oh my goodness, here's an officer of the occupying army who is part of your problem. Now in this case, this guy, and I want you to get some insight into him because he's, he's a pretty sensitive and savvy individual. Um, one of Herod's sons was the Tetrarch. He was the one in charge up in that region. And this centurion was probably appointed to the northern Galilee area as the officer in charge of the Roman garrison and the company that was responsible for keeping the peace and keeping order there. You know, and as he kind of looked at the situation and, and lived among the people for whom he was responsible to Rome, he took a, a personal interest in them to the point that he paid for their synagogue to be built in Capernaum. And he invested himself in their lives. And so... The, the normal cultural tensions have been broken a little bit by this guy, but it still didn't take away the stigma that he was a Gentile. And so, when Jesus comes back to Capernaum, and this soldier has undoubtedly studied what's going on. He's not naive. He's heard about Jesus. He knows what he's done. He's been paying attention. And Jesus is back in town, and his servant is sick to the point of dying. And so he brings some of the Jewish elders together. Very smart move. He, he wants to... I, I'm not saying smart in the sense of shrewd or cunning. I'm saying in the sense of wanting to uh, give the least amount of offense and to be sensitive. And so he calls these elders together who know him because he built their synagogue. And he says to them, I want you to go to Jesus for me. And I want you to tell him about my slave who's almost at the point of death. And ask if he can help. And uh, so these Jewish leaders go to Jesus. Now there's tension there too because... These are the elders in Capernaum. That makes them leaders of the synagogue, probably members of the Sanhedrin. And what have they been doing with Jesus all this time? <laughs> They've been trying to trip him up, trap him. They, they're disgusted with what he's doing. He's been healing on the Sabbath. They don't like him. But they're kind of in a bind. And so they go to Jesus and they... 
present this centurion's case. And Jesus does a remarkable thing. He immediately heads toward the centurion's house. I want you to take everything I've said and try to connect with what a huge monumental step that is. Jesus is risking the further deterioration of his welcome in Capernaum. He's once again putting himself on the line by going to the home of the Gentile. And if he goes in that house and, and ministers to those Roman citizens, Roman military, I don't care what the benefits have been, there's going to be tremendous criticism and, and hatred for Jesus going into that environment. And Jesus doesn't give it a minute's thought. He just moves in the direction of need. Love your enemies. I don't think Jesus really had enemies in that sense, at least not along racial or uh, prejudicial lines, but it never occurred to him not to come to the aid of someone who asked his help, even a Roman centurion. So he starts out to go, and he's approaching the house, and word gets back to the centurion that Jesus is on the way. Now, the centurion goes into action because he wants to prevent a scene. And he brings some of his own friends together, and he says, look, go meet them. Don't, he doesn't have to come to my house. Go meet them. And tell them this. Tell them that I am a person in authority. I understand how authority works. I tell this person, go and he goes. And I tell this one, come and he comes. And I tell my servant, do this. And he does it. I understand authority. I know Jesus has authority. He doesn't have to come here. All he has to do is say the word. And my servant will be healed. So just stop him before you know, this turns into a political crisis, just stop him and, and let him know that. And that I have every confidence that if he just speaks, everything will be fine. And so they bring, they bring this word to Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus' reaction is amazing in itself. He is astonished. It's like, whoa! I have never seen this kind of faith anywhere. Not even in all of Israel have I seen this kind of faith. Here's this Roman centurion, and he is demonstrating more faith than I've seen among any Jew I've met yet. That's an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. And so Jesus kind of stops and says, well, all right. And he speaks the word, and he says, go and tell him he's going to be fine. And by the time this group gets back to the centurion's house, the slave is well. And I have a question for you. What is it that astonished Jesus 
And what is so astonishing about this Roman centurion's faith? It's twofold. The first is he has a real understanding of authority. And the second part is he has real insight into the person and nature of Jesus Christ. First of all, he has an understanding of authority. He knows that when authority is vested in you, that, that the weight of the one granting that authority stands behind it. As a centurion, all of Rome backs him up. If you diso disobeyed an order from the centurion, the whole Roman army stands behind him. And there's great authority there. There's great fear there. There should be. And so he is able to command his men, in part because he's a wise leader, but in part because he has authority. He says, you jump, and the soldier says, how high, and when can I come down? He understands that. He doesn't even have to be present. All he has to do is send the message. He can send a note, you know, by, by a messenger. Tell this particular garrison to go do thus and so. Authority of the centurion. And boom, they do it. They follow those orders. He says, I understand that authority. I know how it works. And I'm under authority and I'm in authority. And all I have to do is say the word and it is obeyed. Now... He looks at Jesus and he's been listening to and observing his ministry and getting the reports. And here's what he's perceived. Jesus has healed the sick many, many times. Jesus has cast out demons. He has even forgiven sin. And he hasn't been struck dead for it. In fact, he backed up the time he forgave sin, he backed it up with a miraculous healing. The paralytic whose sins he forgave got up and walked. And the centurion has looked at this and observed it, and he says, I am perceiving that this man has authority over disease, over evil spirits, over supernatural powers. I am perceiving that this man has authority to forgive sin. He is empowered by God. I think it would be a reach to say that he perceived that he was fully deity, the Son of God. I, there's nothing of that in this passage, but, but he gets it. He understands that Jesus has this kind of authority. And Jesus just kind of looks at that situation and says, this is truly remarkable, that he is able to observe the ministry to understand authority and to know that I have it. This is amazing. No one in Israel has figured this out yet. And here's this Roman centurion that gets it. And not only that, the centurion believes that Jesus will respond to him. He's, he knows enough about his character that he believes that Jesus will come and respond to him. And, and hear his request. And so Jesus speaks the word, and the slave is healed 
in that very moment. Now, you remember when the Jews, the Jewish leadership came to Jesus? They, they made an interesting statement. They said, this man is worthy of this miracle of this deed because he has done so much for our nation. He, he built us a synagogue. He has helped us in many ways. He is worthy of your attention. And then when the centurion sends his closest associates to meet Jesus on the way, he says, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. So the Jews' idea was he, he deserves the miracle because he's done some good deeds. And the centurion's perception is, I don't deserve you to come to my house. I, I, I'm a nobody. But you have authority and I believe you can do this thing. I think the point that is being underscored there for us is it is not a matter of worthiness or works that we have done, or how good we are, that the grace and the kindness and the love of God responds to us. It is a matter of turning to Him in faith and believing that He will act. The Apostle Paul, in writing the book of Romans and talking about Abraham, says, for this reason it is by faith in order that it might be by grace. And friends, you and I really don't deserve anything. But it doesn't matter whether we deserve it or don't deserve it or whether we've done good works or haven't done good works. The issue before God is when you turn to Jesus, are you turning to him on the basis of your performance? Or are you turning to him on the basis of faith? And are you believing that he is going to respond to you because of who he is, not because of who you are? And that's a crucial distinction. The centurion had confidence that Jesus' character would respond to his need because he is good, he is loving. He is full of grace. He is merciful. He will respond to me. Not because of what I have or haven't done, but because of who he is. I believe that he will respond to me. And indeed, Jesus did that. And the question that comes to us as we consider the story, story not that it's a fairy tale, but that it's a narrative, as we consider the narrative is, when we come to Jesus, do we come on the basis of who He is? And are we looking to Him for answers because of who He is? Or are we doing so on the basis of our merit? Some people don't approach Jesus because they don't feel like they have anything to give Him, to offer Him. They're not justified in asking for His help. And other people approach God believing, I've done plenty of good deeds, and by golly, He ought to be good to me. I deserve it. And the reality is that God's responsiveness to us is not based upon our behavior, it is based upon His grace. 
and therefore it is accessible to those who have faith, who believe that he will respond. And Jesus' response is not based on politics, it's not based on cultural diversity, it's not based on class hatred or Jew or Gentile or anything like that. It's purely arising from his own nature out of grace and mercy. He wants to help this centurion. And he says, I've I've never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. This is amazing to me that here is a Roman officer who understands my character and knows my authority and recognizes who I am sufficiently enough to ask for help, believing he's going to receive it because he knows I'm able to do this even at a distance. You know, as I was thinking about this message, I realized that this centurion is very much in the shape that we're in this morning. He's very much in that condition. Jesus is not sitting right here. We cannot come up at the end of this service and talk to Jesus in the flesh and have him put his hand on us and bring healing or bring help or bring strength or whatever. He is not physically present. But he does not have to be. Because he is spiritually present and residing in the position of supreme authority. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He wields the power of the universe. He is almighty God. And we can come to him in absentia, if you please, and ask him. And he does not have to be sitting here to help you. He is sitting there, even though he is present in spirit. He is sitting there, and he can speak the word. And by his authority, the demons have to obey. Disease has to obey. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. He is the mighty God. He is the one who can meet us in our moment of need. And I ask you this morning, are you among those who, after you have exhausted everything you know to do, you say, well, there's nothing left to do now but to pray. I've done it all. I have nothing else. to. Th- I can't even think of anything else. I guess we'll have to pray. You know, when people say that, they don't say that with a great deal of hopefulness. It's like the last-ditch effort, the desperate cry, I've come to the end, it's not looking so good. There's nothing now but prayer. And friends, what I want us to recognize this morning very clearly is, prayer is the first thing we need to do. It is the starting point. We come to Jesus. Are you struggling in your life? Do you have a sin problem, a habit that you can't conquer? He's the deliverer. Do you have some emotional distress in your life that drags you down and and makes your life miserable? He is the wonderful counselor who knows how to get right in there and minister to your heart and your spirit and sort out your life for you. 
He is the one who can bring that healing. Do you have a physical need this morning? Jesus is the one that is the great physician. He is the one who is risen with healing in his wings. He is the one to whom we come and he can touch us with his mighty power. Do you need this morning to be cleansed of your sin and to be released from your guilt and to have a relationship with God? Do you need to come home to the Father? Jesus is the one who is the Redeemer, the Savior, the Forgiver. He can remove your sin and wash you and make you whiter than snow. He can cleanse you and give you peace with God. He is the mighty conqueror who overcomes the powers of darkness and defeats the voices of hell. He is the one who is risen and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he has all authority in heaven and earth to meet your need. Will you come to him? Will you start with him? Will you seek his counsel? Will you ask his help? Don't make him the last resort. Make him the first stop. Come to Jesus and let him minister to you. Whatever your need is, he is available and ready. And it's not a matter of whether you're worthy or whether you're not worthy. It's a matter of his grace and his character. He loves you. He died for you. He has shed his own blood to redeem you and purchase you for himself that he might bring you into his family. How could we ask for more? If God cares this much, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He is available today for you. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that you would fill our hearts with faith to believe that you or Jesus are able. Whatever the needs are here this morning, as I look around the room and I see people that have different issues going on in their lives, some need healing of their spirit, their wounded heart. Some need to be delivered from their anger and their hurt and their bitterness. Some need to have their bodies touched because they're in pain and they're broken and they're not working right. Some this morning need to have healing in their emotions. Some need relationships that are broken to be mended. Oh, Lord Jesus, there is nothing too hard for you Nothing beyond your ability. 
you invite us to come, all you that labor and are heavy laden, weighed down and burdened, come to me, learn of me, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in my spirit and heart, and there you will find rest for your soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.